0: Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argivon Neil fourouge a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now, let's get into today's conversation. Women's health inequality refers to the unequal treatment and outcomes that women experience in relation to their health. Despite significant advancements in medical science and progress towards gender equality, women continue to encounter barriers that hinder their ability to receive timely and appropriate health care. Dr. Lerner is our guest today, and she specializes in reproductive psychiatry, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, life transitions, grief, and loss. She has expertise in the management of psychiatric and emotional challenges during pregnancy and postpartum. Dr. Lerner graduated with a BA in sociology from Rice University and received her MD at the Baylor College of Medicine and the Meninger Department of Psychiatry in Houston. She completed her residency in psychiatry at the University of California in San Francisco and subsequently the Foundations of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Program at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis. A warm welcome to you, Dr. Lerner. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for
1: having me. I'm so excited to be able to talk with you.
0: And we have so much to talk about regarding this multifaceted nature of this very important topic that's near and dear to us both, which is women's health. So let's dive right in. All right. I first want to ask you, health inequality, we know it's still going on. How big of it is an issue still in a global perspective?
1: Well... Did you know that actually including female participants in clinical studies was only made mandatory in the U.S. in 1993 by the National Institutes of Health Guidelines? So just even starting there, despite all the healthcare advances that we've had in the last few decades, we still face wide gaps in research and treatment for areas that are unique to women, like maternal and menstrual health, but also for conditions that present differently in women than men. And so then that puts us in a position currently where we still have health issues and disparities in treatment that are largely preventable because we don't have a good enough understanding of women's bodies still at this time.
0: Yeah. And I was looking at statistics. I I love numbers and I like to see trends and what's been going on. And the numbers are still so staggering. Like for example, with maternal mortality, I was looking at the World Health Organization website and it was saying something like approximately 800 women are still dying every single day. During pregnancy or childbirth, and there were reproductive health numbers like still over 200 million women still don't have access to contraception. I think there was like 25 million unsafe abortions still happening every single year, and these and, and this isn't you know as of 2021, but just even in the last two years. And so there's still so much conversation that needs to be had, so much education, so much awareness. Mm -hmm. That still needs to be had on a global scale. So um, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Dr. Lerner, what about social economic factors and how those impact a woman's access to health care and her health
1: outcome? Well, so I mean, what you were talking about in terms of pregnancy-related deaths, you know, so I, I would say poverty, along with discrimination against women and certain groups of women in particular, is is probably the biggest cause of health inequality. You know, every day all over the world, women die from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. But 99% of those deaths occur in low and middle income countries. And then if we kind of zoom in on the United States, the CDC has reported that four, four out of five pregnancy related deaths are preventable and that black women are nearly three times more likely To die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women, so this the problem of 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 discrimination and misogyny and poverty, those across the board is what is causing health disparities and health problems for women around the world.
0: Yes, and you and I both were born in developing countries and were raising our daughters you know, in a developed country. And they're going to have significantly different experiences than women that are still in those countries, which, you know, every woman deserves access to good quality healthcare, but unfortunately we're still not there yet.
1: Yeah. And I think, that immigrant perspective really does give, gives me a lot. And, and I wonder how much, how much Americans are aware of, mm-hmm. of what the state is for women around the world. You know, as a child of immigrants, and I, I am intimately aware of gender beliefs in other parts of the world, and I am so yes. grateful to have had the childhood in the United States that I did. And it, my childhood was informed by feminism and a belief in America as a land of opportunity and hope. And even if things weren't perfect yet, even in spite of a legacy of inequality, there was this idea that somebody like me, a brown girl, a daughter of inter- immigrants, could be a real American and do well in life.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I am I am very sad now that we are taking huge steps backwards, See, that we have so much anger in the United States these days, and we have so much difficulty communicating with one another, And I'm sad that we're forgetting that women's lives are the fabric of society. It's like we don't remember how bad things can be, but we only need to look around at other countries to see what happens when we don't honor women's sovereignty over their bodies. We don't educate girls on health and relationships, and we don't protect a girl and a woman's ability to be safe in dating, marriage, and divorce. You know, and when I think about that, I know that America is a great country, but we're not so advanced that we couldn't lose everything in an instant. You know, that's the thing about loss. It happens in the blink of an eye.
0: It's so true. And I know we just both had an Instagram Live, and one of the big topics that we talked about, something that women have every single day, periods, and still the stigma that's attached to periods, and just the treatment of women because of something that their body does naturally. Um, Can you explain the period stigma for our audience and why that's still
1: an ongoing issue? Yeah, definitely. So period stigma covers issues from a lack of education for young girls about their period to shame in asking for a menstrual pad or tampon to being fully excluded from community when a girl or a woman is on her period. And, you know, traditionally in Hindu communities, girls are not supposed to go to temple while they're on their period because they're considered to be unclean. But at the same time, in many Hindu communities, temple is the most important social hub. So being barred from attendance effectively bars a woman from community. And I can personalize that by saying, you know, luckily, my parents never barred me from any activities because of my period. And my dad was very comfortable with going to the store to buy maxi pads for us. And I think that my confidence and academic achievement is directly tied to the comfort and confidence I was able to have with my body and menstrual cycle as a young girl. And then period poverty, I think, is also related to period stigma is a lack of access to sanitary products, menstrual hygiene, education, toilets, hand-washing facilities, waste management. And in much of the world, girls have little to no access to period products. Sometimes that's because the country is just so economically impoverished that they, they just don't have those products. But sometimes that is because of misogyny and period stigma. But when a girl or any person is not able to take care of her body in the most basic way, that girl is unable to go to school. She's not able to work, run errands, or protect herself. Um, and in Afghanistan, one of the first changes that the Taliban did was to get rid of female days at the small village communal bats. And in such rural places, there's no other way for girls and women to clean themselves. And then females get more susceptible to infection illness, and death.
0: And if you're a young girl or a woman and you're living in a part of the world that is impoverished, and you mentioned an example, Afghanistan, or and you live under misogynist rules, what does life look like there? What are your unique challenges that you're, you're faced with? Because we're very lucky to be in this part of the world. And I always think about you could just have been born elsewhere. And you would have those experiences, those
1: challenges
0: in those conflict and crisis situations.
1: I think you know the biggest difficulty for girls and women, and the more and more misogynistic of a society that you go, the more and more girls and women are just excluded from society, period, you know, beginning with um, education, and you know if a girl can't go to school, then she has no ability to she she has very little ability to have any agency in her life you know education equals freedom and it gives you the ability to learn skills and take care of yourself earn money and and have independence which for a girl independence equals safety so being excluded from school and education means a lack of safety but then, you know, when when the Taliban came into uh, to Afghanistan and they required, it was during COVID, and so we were all wearing masks in the United States, and I had all these instances, especially early on when I wasn't used to seeing anyone in a mask, where I would, I was at the local library, I remember, and I saw a neighbor, and but I didn't recognize her as someone that I knew because half her face was covered, mm-hmm. and and I remember just feeling quite alone because i didn't I couldn't tell who anybody was. I didn't realize who my friends were and finally this neighbor started talking, and I recognized her voice and I realized that she was a neighbor and a friend of mine and and it was during that time that the women in in Afghanistan had to be in the full covering that the blue long dress with the face mask and I just think like they're all at the grocery store together, but they have no idea that their sister or their Best friend or you know their support people are are there as well. So even when they're together, they're really alone and excluded from community.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so true. And Dr. Lerner, you and I are both excited about storytelling, passionate when we interact with people. And something I think about are how things have changed over generations. Like I look at my own parents and then my grandparents, and I think about how those conversations and life experiences have changed over time. And I'm curious, what has been your conversation in your family about, you know, ancestors and even grandparents, great grandparents, and then your own parents, and then you, and now raising your daughter? What that has looked like?
1: Well, I mean, so much has changed. My parents grew up in like a little island off of an island off the island of Sri Lanka. You know, they were they, mm-hmm. and then I was born in in Dallas, Texas, and mm-hmm. grew between the United States and London, and, and then my daughter, you know, is in this mixed multicultural family growing up in the U.S., but also traveling. And, you know, one of the things actually that, that kind of stands out to me in you asking that question, um, in, in much of South Asia and, and, and in other places as well, arranged marriage is, is still the typical norm. Yeah, and and I think in a lot of cities and and like wealthier people arranged marriage can mean more like arranged dating. But in my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, you know, arranged marriage was arranged marriage. There are many people in my parents' age who met their spouse for the first time on their wedding day, and and my grandmother got married when she was fifteen, and she had eight children, um, and so when I was two years old and my parents took took me back to Sri Lanka to meet my grandparents and relatives and stuff. My grandfather, who's a very respected man in the village, he said, Uma's going to choose her own husband from the men in America. And that was like a big deal for somebody mm-hmm. to say at that time to like a two-year-old girl. But because he was so important of a person and respected of a person, you know, my parents really took that to heart. And so they never, like arranged marriage was never a a concept on the table for me, mm-hmm. and and my my dad gave me lots of messages about you know how to choose a good husband and mm-hmm. how to have agency and how to be safe and be aware in the world, and so you know on the one hand I was given independence, freedom, and agency, but on the other hand I was also given a lot of village wisdom about how to choose and how to be safe. And so I feel like I had kind of the best of both worlds in that way. Yeah. And and you,
0: yeah, no, this is, I love hearing this story because so much of it I relate to, but so much of it, it helps give perspective of how other people's life experiences shaped who they are today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me then when I, when I'm working with young people, in my in my psychiatric and therapy practice and i speak to a lot of american you know high school and college and 20 something year old girls who are given this who have this freedom and independence and agency but then are kind of left alone with that and are not given that village that accompanying village wisdom about yeah. valuing and protecting their bodies about prioritizing their sense of self mm-hmm. about, you know, being careful about not just physical violence, but psychological violence. And and also the way that we treat all these young people in the United States, just sort of, they're just left to their own devices without a whole lot of supervision. And if you look at colleges, right? Like it feels like frat and drinking culture In US colleges is more highly valued than women's safety. You know, under among undergraduate students, 26% of females experience rape or sexual assault. And this conversation that we're finally having now, it's so only recently about frat and drinking and hookup and date date rape cultures on college campuses, it's only now being talked about. And so I think so much more has to be done to protect the safety of our young people and give them the guidance that their bodies and their lives, girls' bodies and girls' lives are really valuable.
0: Yeah. And with the statistics that you should typically they're underreported, right? And we saw with the Me Too movement and even people that I know were sharing some of their stories and some within you know, their level of comfort. but. That was so alarming to me to think like how many people experienced that trauma, but they never shared it or they never sought therapy for it. And it was just because it was stigmatized and, and people kept it very much undercover. And then only when everyone else started talking about it, people felt like this is the time where I need to start sharing my story and supporting other women who've also experienced the same or worse
1: yeah, yeah, and I don't know how many times I've had conversations with young women, but not just young women. Actually, even you know, women in their forties, like older women, ab- about their their sexual lives. And I, I always I ask the question, you know, well, why did you have sex, and and it's really appalling to me that so often the answer is because he wanted to. Right pressure. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, well, did you want to? And and then they say they, they hadn't even thought about it. Like they hadn't considered that as a as a perspective, what they want sexually. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And Dr. Lerner, you had shared in relation to that, um, an article for Almet magazine, but you've spoken about this as well, is when young girls start puberty, the level of anxiety and depression goes up tremendously. Yeah. What's happening there and especially in a place like, you know, you have access like you mentioned you're in a developing country, you have access and there are resources, but still we're seeing these high levels of depression and anxiety, social isolation.
1: What's the connection there? Well, I I think of it, you know, that so girls and boys have equal levels of of confidence and, and low, self, low self-esteem or good self-esteem, it's all, it's all equal up until puberty. And that's when girls' confidence really drops. And so, you know, it seems to reason, stands to reason that that is because of puberty. There's some differential thing happening at that time. Part of it, I think, is um, body image issues and girls feeling... Insecure as their body is changing, and I think there's a lot of bullying that happens of girls around that time. And I think the adults we are not doing enough to create a normative and supportive culture around children's changing bodies. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, of course, that's happening with girls at puberty is that they start having their period, and and there's still a lot of period stigma in the United States. And you know, when a girl misses school. Miss school equals missed opportunities and a drop in confidence. And at that time of puberty, that's middle school. And that missed school is occurring just as academics and the social landscape is getting more complex. And, you know, a lot of the period stigma that girls face, it causes them to feel embarrassed about a normal biologic process. And it also leaves them unable to properly manage bleeding, cramping, or other period-related difficulties. And a loss of learning and social opportunities is is problematic for anyone. But specifically when we look at girls, young girls who do not receive a full education are more likely to enter marriage too early Mm -hmm. and are more likely to face early pregnancy, domestic violence, and pregnancy complications.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing those staggering numbers still happening both here as well as abroad. So all the reason why we need to be paying attention. One of the things technology always seems to come up, right? We're seeing this advancement in technology. It's widespread. How do you think that impacts opportunities and outcomes for women and girls? And where can we go from here? You
1: know, I mean, technology, I mean, it has its good sides and it's and it's shadow sides, you know, and there's a lot we're we're learning more and more about the negative impacts that social media has on young girls and how you know it's exacerbating body dysmorphic problems and low self-esteem and and depression and even suicidality. But on the flip side, and especially when we're talking about impoverished countries and impoverished places, Access to tech is access to education. So even in places where girls might be prohibited from going to school, which obviously that's something that needs to be worked on and improved, girls really should be able to go to school. But even in where they are prohibited, if you have a laptop or computer, even just a smartphone at home, then, then that girl and that family has access to supplementary educational materials. And from a health perspective, you know, With technology, clinics in faraway places have access to medical support, whether that's through partnerships with other doctors and hospitals, being able to get second opinions, having access to remote care services, and also having access to education resources and and public health coordination countrywide.
0: Yeah. And I was reading, like, for example... Um, in Thailand in 2013, they opened what's called a one-stop crisis center. And that has now expanded to, I think, like 22,000 centers all over the country. And it's a place where women can come and, again, removing that stigma. It's a safe place for them to seek care related to gender violence. And even in Mali, they now are opening violence units for rape victims So people are starting to tap into how technology and advancement can really support a cause, but hopefully we're just continuing upwards from there Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because there's still so many people that we know, right, all over the world that are still under immense um, challenges and difficulties and they don't have access to proper
1: care. That's true. That's true, both in, in, in the United States and, of course, all around the world as well.
0: Yes. Um, let's talk about government's policymakers because, yes, we know with voting, we can make the biggest impact, right? A lot of us want to do good, but we feel frustrated or we feel we don't know where to start when it comes to helping make an impact, right? Like just, for example, when you hear the news and you hear about the shootings and everyone feels helpless and everyone wants to take action, but it's like they don't know where to begin when it comes to women's health, what do you think the government's policymakers can do to address women's health and equalities and promote this
1: gender equity in healthcare? I think when we talk about you know women's healthcare, I think it helps to first take a step back and look at healthcare in general, because there are issues with just accessing healthcare, period, which of course then impacts women's healthcare specifically. So Number one, I think addressing healthcare costs and access, and we have huge disparities in life expectancy around the United States and within even geographic, small geographic areas, even if you look at just the Bay Area, there are huge disparities in life expectancy from one county to another based on wealth. So- Addressing healthcare access and healthcare cost is is I think first and foremost important, but then also access to accurate health information. We're like inundated with like so much information nowadays. It's hard to know what's accurate and what's not, what's misinformation, and we saw that a lot during COVID, and we've seen in the past with like vaccines in general. So being able to help people access accurate health information. And then for women specifically, menstrual education, sex and relationship education, and abortion access. And I think, you know, of course, voting is our number one source of agency in the United States, but I think we also need to remember that conversation is an important source of agency and and community building, and I think that we really need to become more open get back to being comfortable with talking to one another again and not being so scared of, of potentially controversial issues. Because I don't think that we can address these issues through anger via a bullhorn or Twitter, You know, which is a lot of how the communication happens nowadays. The issues of women's health, these are really tender issues. These are issues of girls' bodies. They're issues tied to the fabric of family and community, issues related to the creation of life. Issues that also relate to possible death and loss, pain and sorrow. So we have to come to these conversations with compassion, openness, and love.
0: Yeah. And as you were talking about life expectancy, I, I think I spend a lot of time thinking about this. So we're seeing the trends in life expectancy actually go up. And I think for females, it's going to go up to like 89.2, for males, 83.2. Again, these are all statistics. So they're not set in stone and Japan having the longest health expectancy. And then of course, you know, a lot of the developing countries, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Somalia, Namibia, those are all the countries with the lowest life expectancy. But again, it's about quality of life, right? So this is the conversation I think that needs to happen, like longevity and how well you live versus just how long you live. And that's I think what matters Right. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, it def, I think quality of life has to be prioritized. A lot of the people, there's all this interest now in in longevity and people spending millions of dollars doing all kinds of tests on themselves, trying to increase their longevity. Um, but for many people, first of all, the 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 life expectancy is is not increasing. Equally amongst everyone. Just as like I said, you know, in, even within the Bay Area, there's huge discrepancies between wealthy counties. and i feel like I was very lucky to have lived during this period of time in the United States. I think you know there are so many changes happening in the u s politically that are that are are pretty regressive and there's so much animosity in the United States and I do worry internally, domestically what that means in terms of the for my daughter, you know, the freedoms that she will have and and just the comfort that she will have and feeling of community. But I also worry worldwide, the United States has been such it's the United States has been problematic for sure. You know, we throw our weight around the world, you know, and we've gotten involved in places that maybe we shouldn't have gotten involved with and there's a whole history of colonialism. But the United States has been an example of liberal democracy, of of women's rights, of of LGBTQ plus rights, of of working on our racial and civil rights, and and I do worry about what will happen to the world when America isn't that example anymore. And so that's what I what I hope for my daughter and her generation is that we hold on to these concepts of of compassion and equality and, and progress and in, in a positive emotional direction. Mm-hmm. And I
0: think this is where it's important to step outside of ourselves and look around and see what can we do to help even make a small impact and then the ripple effect of that. Because with 8 billion people in the world... There's And most people in the world are truly suffering. And this is something that I tell my kids. Like what we see around us is not the general population. And this is where once there's travel and research and education and knowledge is when we really see what's happening on a global scale. And it's important to look at every single person and acknowledge their life experience. And like Maya Angelou says, one of my favorite quotes is, once you know better, do better
1: hmm
0: that's a good quote. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is something that connected you and I, Dr. Lerner. I know as two women of color with our upbringing and then now raising daughters, I know we can have this conversation a lot. And so I'm hoping that our next conversation, there'll be even more advancements and things, positive things, right, that are changing
1: both also- local
0: community and global level.
1: Mm -hmm. And there is so much work being done, you know, Mm -hmm. and there is so much love being given out in the world. And so, you know, I think to continue to have hope in that, and I think to continue to participate in that. And I think, I think conversation is so important. And I think, as you said, kind of pointed out, compassion is something that has to be taught. Mm -hmm. And I think teaching, teaching our children that as well.
0: Yeah, and if you have ways for our listeners to get involved, whether it's a grassroots level or on a global health initiative, I'd love to link any of those in our show notes to make them easily accessible. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, Dr. Lerner, uh, your expertise experience on this important topic have been incredibly valuable and enlightening. Thank you so much for being here
1: to share all of that with us. Thank you so much, Argavin. It's been so great to talk. I really appreciate this conversation and, and your time so much.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And your passion about educating and empowering women to take control of our health is truly inspiring. And I hope this conversation can also help others. We can all collectively work towards creating a more equitable and inclusive healthcare system that meets the diverse needs of all the women in the world. So thank you so much again, and thank you to the listeners as always for tuning in. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host Argavan Nilforoush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.